Well, good morning, everyone. Peace be with you. It's good to see you. Man, how about them babies, y'all, huh? Woo! I don't know what it is. Uh, I don't believe in the myth that all babies are born attractive, but I, I do believe in the, in the reality that all babies here are born attractive. I don't know. Every time I keep waiting for, like, the picture of that funny-looking baby to show up, and you guys keep making good babies. Uh, so it's uh, such a joy to see God raising up so much life within us and all the family and friends. I'm not really sure who all is here right now, uh, so I'm glad you're here. Uh, if you're a family and friend, thanks a lot for coming. If you're here just randomly visiting, what a day to come check it out. Uh, I like seeing everybody fan. It makes me feel like we're an old-fashioned church, uh, which we kind of are because we're on like a 1950s HVAC system. Last week, it was 40 degrees, and we scrambled to get the heat on, and we've got one of those systems where once the heat's on, it's on. You know what I mean? Or we could spend like $1,000 to turn the AC on. So just enjoy sweating. I only have like an hour and a half sermon for you. Um, uh, so uh, just a couple of quick things. I'll, I'll skip over most of the stuff. You can read your bulletins. Uh, there's great stuff coming up, particularly the Women's Gift Exchange. Um, yeah, Ooh, all right, ladies. Uh, there's no men's gift exchange because the guys don't do fun in this church. We leave that, we leave that to the ladies. Um, but just one thing I, I wanted to point out because, uh, you know, throughout, throughout the scriptures, there's this, um, I, this warning that once you get to a good spot, be on guard because it's easy to fall away then. And we're real close to having the renovations done. If you're like, what renovations or how close are we or why did it take so long? Uh, there's, we put an article or I don't know, a blog post up on the city, if you're like, what's the city? Just look on Facebook or Twitter, it's out there. Um, and there's this temptation to be like, oh man, we have real bathrooms now. And the, the, no one's used them, but we flushed them. Like we've got bathrooms and stalls and doors and it's really great. Um, but we don't wanna sit back and think, oh, we've arrived. And I'm so grateful for the way you guys have continuously responded in generosity. Usually when churches raise a lot of money to do something, their giving goes down, which affects some of like a regular uh, movements of mission, and that's been the exact opposite case for us. Our, our giving has continued to go up despite all of that. And we did something this last week that we've never done in the history of Sojourn that I think is just so encouraging. So within our church, we have 105 souls that consider Sojourn their home. They're either a pastor here or a member here, but they're living overseas for the sake of the kingdom of God. We've sent them out as uh, missionaries, the sent ones we call from our church. And this last week, for the first time ever, they're, they're literally all over the globe. We'll have this really cool map in there to show you so you can see where everybody is. Everyone gathered uh, to worship God together, to get marriage counseling, to just be encouraged. And some of the stories we heard were things like, I haven't heard live preaching in five years. I haven't sang with a group of other Christian in, in years. This is amazing and, and refreshing. And we've got a picture, high quality missionary picture here, uh, it's dark, but these are all the folks from New Albany uh, that serve overseas or some of the folks that went over to serve the people over overseas. So we sent out volunteers and did like a VBS for the kids and then just kind of cared for the couples that were there this last week. And again, we had about 90 people there, which is pretty amazing, uh, but that doesn't represent all the folks we have. So when, when you guys give, the, the first thing that happens with money here is it, is, is it goes out. And what a privilege to be. It feels like we're a bigger church today because all of you came and I'm not, it's cool. Um, but we're kind of a small Indiana church here, but our, our, our hands reach out across the world, 105 people living full-time overseas. So thank you for your generosity. Uh, thank you for your continued faithfulness. 
Uh, and I was just so encouraged by that. Um, I also, a bird came and told me that we ran out of bulletins, which has never happened before, so here we are. But if you want a bulletin, just raise your hand, and we went and printed some more, and someone will come by and get them. All right, Brandon, yep. Okay, you guys see, I see that hand. I've always wanted to say that in church. <laughs> I see that hand. I see that hand, Jeff, in the back. All right, they'll keep mingling. Um, fun. Good day. So we're in this series talking about the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. Solas means alone. Uh, we'll talk more about that here in a second. Uh, last week, we talked about kind of the core uh, belief that was reclaimed by the reformers, and, and that was this idea of the gospel of grace. Uh, we were reminded, here's the simplest way I can put the gospel of grace. God loves you, period. God loves you. And he, he loves you enough to rescue you single-handedly. Uh, he loves you enough to ensure that you can never be taken out of his family. He loves you enough uh, that he took all the pressure of duty and performance that we carry. He lifted it off you and placed it on his own son who executed it perfectly. Um, the simplest way we can put it is this is what the gospel of grace says. In Christ, God only has smiles for you. If, if, if you trust him, if you're willing to believe this, even just a little bit, when God looks at you, he only knows how to smile at you anymore. Now, when I first started preaching, people in church like to give feedback, um, which means they'll tell you everything that's wrong with the church or the way that they would do it that's better than the way you would do it. Um, but it's feedback, which is like, you know, Christians kind of like church up stuff. Christians don't get angry, right? What do Christians get? Anybody? Frustrated. Yeah. But I don't get angry. I get frustrated, right? No, you get angry. You just church it up. Uh, and so I used to get a lot of sermon feedback, um, which is around things. Basically, it said this, do better, right? Like, do better next time. Why would you say that? Um, and it was, some of it wasn't all that bad. Some of it was real helpful. Uh, and I'd only preached a handful of sermons when I came here. Now, um, I don't get as much sermon feedback. I don't know if that's because we've trained you all, um, like to say who you are or something like that when you have the, the criticism. Or if I've gotten better, I don't know which one it is, uh, but I'm a glutton for punishment, so I, I send spies out into the community. Um, I plant people in community groups. I post people up in coffee shops. Uh, and then they come back and report to me what the people are saying. Uh, and after, after last week, here's what my spies have reported to me. Um, we, as the people of God, uh, don't know what to do with grace. Makes us all uncomfortable. Um, some, some folks are offended by the message of grace. They wouldn't call it offended, though. They would say something like, I'm concerned. Um, and what the offended people say, after hearing this message that God single-handedly saves us, they'll, they'll say something like, it sounds like you're giving permission to sin. Are you saying that? It sounds like you're saying that we can... You know, their, their immediate response is this feeling of, we've just told everyone, go do whatever you want. Uh, some people get restless at the message of grace, and they'll say stuff like, this is all fine and good. I'm all pro-grace, but like, I come to church so you can tell me what to do. Just, just give me my list of how I can make my life better this week. Enough of the grace stuff. I get it. I get it. What do you want me to do? And then there's some people that I would say are just skeptical. Uh, they hear a message of this uh, scandalous love, 
And they say, surely no one could love me like this. What's the catch? What's the bait and switch? No one could love me like this, especially after everything that I've done. And these reactions, uh, they... These concerns, they they speak to the core issue of the Protestant Reformation, which we've been considering now. Um, And that's, here's a theological word for you, so you feel like you got something. Um, It's the the concept of justification. Uh, That was kind of the core issue that was at stake in the Reformation. And it's a big theme underlying all of scriptures that that kind of speaks to there's, there's two core problems that we have as human beings. This is what we argue, this is what the scriptures argue. The first is we have a legal problem. You're all in legal trouble this morning um, because God is a just God. He's a God of laws. He's a God of order and goodness. And as those who've rebelled against God, as those who violated his laws, we are legally condemned before him as lawbreakers. So we all have this wonderful common ground here that, that we've all messed up, we've all turned from God, and we all stand in legal trouble. God is a judge, and we are on trial. We have a legal problem. Um, But we have another problem, too. It's it's not just this legal problem we have. We have a relational problem. We are created in the image of God to be in community with God, to be friends with God, to be children in the family of God, to have peace with God and peace with one another. And we've severed that relationship through our rebellion. So not only are we in legal trouble with God, but we're in relational trouble with God. Because God is perfect and just, he can't bring lawbreakers into his family without breaking his own law. God's in kind of a pickle here because at the same time that he's just and a judge, he's also a father who loves his children and longs to restore them and heal them. So this theological idea of justification is God's plan for solving our legal and relational problem. It's his plan for maintaining his perfect justice, honoring his law, and rescuing his children who are helpless. Last week, when we talked about a justification by grace alone, it speaks to God's divine action. Justification happens by grace alone. It's a gift. And today, we're looking at our response. We are justified by grace alone through faith alone. And if you're here this morning and you're hoping that today will be less uncomfortable than last Sunday was, or if you're like, baby dedication, you're not going to put the heat on today, I'm pleased to disappoint you, right? Like, today is not much easier for us, all oh, those of us who have those struggles, it's just not much easier for us. Uh, essentially, um, justification through faith alone says this, that all God wants to hear from you is I trust you, Help me trust you more. That's what God is sitting back and waiting to hear from us. Let's consider, as we wrap our minds around that, let's consider a little more why we have such a hard time with this message of grace alone uh, through faith alone. Romans 5, which we've been in for a couple weeks now, is um, kind of a grand summary and conclusion of Romans 1 through 4. And Romans 1 through 4 is some of the most densely packed uh, explanation of what the gospel is and and what it does. And so here, if you go back in Romans 4, Paul gives us some great insight into what faith is and what it does. And he begins by saying something that seems, I think, pretty obvious. Uh, When people work, their wages are not a gift, but something they have earned. So what this means is, when you go to work, uh, and you get paid every week, every other week, once a month, however you get paid, 
No one takes their paycheck, walks up to their boss and says, thank you, ma'am, for your kindness and generosity. What an amazing gift you've given me. No, we say like, this is my money, right? I earned this. Thank you very much. I'm going home. I'm going to the movies, whatever. Uh, This is how most of life goes for us. Humans are made to work. Working is good. We should all work somehow. We worked before sin and we'll work after sin in the kingdom of God. Working is good, but this speaks to the nature of sin, okay? Sin, there's no like invisible sin monster that comes and just like washes people with sin. Uh, Sin is a parasite that will come and latch onto something good and twist it and pervert it. So when, whenever you see sin at work, it's taken something good and it's twisted it. It's, it's made it a shadow of what God made it to be. So think about how this, how this plays out uh, with our work. Um, we all think that we should get what we deserve in life. And what we deserve in life becomes based on how we've worked. And so if I've done good, I should get good. And so we wrestle with this question, right? Like, why do bad things happen to good people? What's the belief under that? If I do good enough, nothing bad should happen to me because I've earned this. And and this kind of thought came and it began shaping the Catholic notion of justification. Roman Catholicism, which was essentially this huge empire 500 years ago. And this became the sticking point of the Reformation. This is when people started dying to fight over this truth. Here's, I came up for you math people, a helpful equation. Be prepared, it's gonna be amazing. Here's the basic Roman Catholic view of justification. Relationship with God equals your good works plus your real faith. So if you wanna have a relationship with God, if you wanna be restored legally and relationally, the way to do that is by doing good works and having good enough faith. And we talked about some of this last year. Uh, Roman Catholicism created all of these ways that you could make up for a shortage that you had of your good works or your real faith. We talked about rollover minutes, which I thought was funny, where so someone who's done enough good, they have more good than they actually need. If you pay enough, you can get some of their good works counted to you. You get some of the credit. If your faith is poor, but like your, your brother is just, uh, he's a priest and he's amazing, you can pay to get some of his faith counted to you. And if you have enough of this, if you do enough, if you work hard enough, you will earn relationship with God. I know there's a lot of Catholicism in this area, and so I want to be kind of, kind of gentle here, and I'll be honest, I don't really know how. Um, because this, this equation, this formula, latched on to something that was good, this idea of living in the kingdom of God and, and doing good works for God, and, and parasitically twisted it into something ugly. Uh, not, not only is this equation found nowhere in the scriptures, I also find it to be stunningly present in our church, um, in the Protestant church in general. Those who are offended by the gospel of grace, who want to reject this equation on the biblical grounds, uh, but then get offended at the idea of grace, um, I think the offended are typically the self-righteous people. Uh, when you say, well, how, why are you a Christian? And they list all the things they do. 
Well, I go to church on Sundays. I give. I've got this incredibly pure doctrine. Uh, essentially, there's the sense of I do Christianity better than you people. And so, of course, God would save me. I've earned it. Uh, justification by grace alone exposes the offended to their own legal troubles. Uh, the, the more you do, if you're a slightly awake human being, the more good work you do, uh, the, the more righteously you strive to live, the more you should see how far from righteousness you actually live. Uh, here's, to, here's put another way. The defense mechanism of the self-righteous people uh, is basically, it's far easier to sit back and condemn other people than to deal with your own unresolved guilt. It's far easier to sit back and condemn and ease your own conscience by convincing yourself how much better you are than everybody else. The restless people, they want relationship with God, and so they need to know what God requires so they can go and earn it. You see how they bought into this notion? Just tell me what to do, because if I don't go do the things, how will I know I'm on a good standing with God? Justification by grace alone exposes the addict that they are. I have to have more to do. It exposes them to their inability to earn enough. I mean, fundamentally, it's easier to get busy than sit with your own problems. And do you know how easy it is to hide that way in church? say yes to everything, serve to everything, and everybody will be like, man, what a great Christian they are. And they're actually living out a lie, a perversion of the gospel. I have to do all of these things to earn God's approval. Think about the skeptic. Grace alone here does perhaps its most profound work. Justification exposes the skeptic to their own feelings of being unlovable. How many of us carry around in us somewhere deep inside this belief that I'm, I simply don't deserve it? I couldn't be loved this way, especially after all I've done. See, this idea of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, does serious work on the human soul if if we're willing to receive it. And I think it's from this place of awareness that Paul begins to build his case for how we respond through faith alone. And in so doing, Luther, in his day, destroyed the notion that relationship with God requires our good productive works. And I think it's got the power to do that in our own hearts again today. So we come to chapter five and Paul couldn't state the Christian position on justification any simpler. He says, therefore, since we've been made right in God's sight by faith. Another way of saying this is since we've been made right in God's sight through trusting, since our legal and relational troubles have been solved Through trusting. Trusting what, you say? I'm glad that you asked. He says, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Do you see how this destroys that Roman Catholic notion that you have to do something to earn your way to God? The pure words of Scripture put it simply for you. Through trusting what Christ has done for you, you have peace with God. Here's how justification works. God sends Jesus to solve our legal and relational problems. Again, back in Romans 3, as Paul's unpacking all of this, this is what he says. He said, God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for our sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life. 
shedding his blood. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness for he himself is fair and just. And he declares sinners to be right in his sight when, when they believe in Jesus. So Christ solves our legal troubles by receiving the punishment our sin requires. In this way, God maintains his justice. No one gets away with sin. All sin will, is always punished. He, he doesn't just arbitrarily throw open the jailhouse doors and say, let's try it again, guys. God executes his judgment on sin by executing his son, who was a perfect sacrifice, who was one that upheld God's divine laws. And again, this allows God to remain perfectly just and yet incredibly merciful. But you must see that this is not enough. God doesn't simply want us to get out of jail. He gives us peace with himself. He reunites us. He brings us into his family. Or as the scriptures would say, he gives us the right to become sons and daughters of God. This is how Paul puts it in Romans 5. We know how dearly God what? Someone say that word. How dearly God what? loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. God doesn't just forgive us of sin. He makes his home in us. He fills us with his peace and his joy. And, and all of this is a pure gift. This is grace alone through faith alone. No work is required for our justification because Christ has done it all for us. What made what made the idea, the notion of justification uh, through good works in Luther's day so destructive and what makes us so concerned about it and, and it's still so destructive today is that it fundamentally undermines the work of Jesus. It puts the work of justification in human hands, not in the hands of God. It looks at Christ's perfect life, his death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of God the Father. And it says, that's a good start, but it's not enough. And it's simply not what the scriptures say. It says, you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, as we'll see next week in the work of Christ alone. So what does it mean for us to be justified through faith? We're, we're justified by grace alone. That's God's divine action. And the only way we partake in this, the, the only way to respond to this is through faith alone. So again, listen to what Paul says here in Romans 5. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. We receive the promise because of our faith, because of our trusting. We trust God and he adopts us into his family. We receive this place of undeserved privilege, not by effort, but through faith. Look at the language that Paul says here. He says this undeserved place of privilege, where we now stand, there's a posture of trust of saying, I'm gonna be here and I'm not gonna move and I'm gonna trust you to do what you said you're going to do. Justification through faith alone means all God wants to know is if you're willing to trust him, period. How do I respond to this message of grace? Will you trust him? And I think this applies in, in three real concrete ways because this is gonna be kind of abstract. What does it mean to trust God? How do we receive this? Uh, so 
real quick here as we wrap up. The first way we trust God is trust who he says he is. Trust God with who he says he is. This appeals to the question, who gets to decide what God is like? Which in our culture, it seems like everyone gets to decide what God is like. All roads go up the mountain, they go take different ways, but they're all going, well, to me, I see God kind of like a, remember Ricky Bobby, the eight pound, nine ounce baby Jesus in a gold diaper, right? Like, who gets to decide what God is like? You know, Louisville's a seminary town, and so we get some of that over here. And seminary students will be like, well, you know, Van Hooser says that God is like, or whatever. All these thick books say God is like. And I'll tease a future sermon. This is where we go to see what God is like. This book called the Bible. God reveals himself in other places, but this is the most clear place where he says who he is. So as you're wrestling, what does it mean to trust God? Let God decide what God is like. And here's why this is so important. Because if you read this book, to some of you guests, if I would be very concerned if you go to a church where they act like the Bible makes perfect sense all the time, okay? Or that there's nothing confusing in there. I don't know how you say that with integrity. Uh, and maybe I'm young and dumb. I'm willing to, I'm open to that genuinely. There's just strange stuff in the Bible. And if God is God, I would expect him to be smarter than me, right? Like I would expect him to do things that I don't always get. And what do you do when that conflict comes? When God is away, you don't think he should be or when, when God is doing something that you don't think you deserve. To trust God means let God settle the conflict, not you. Or, or in other words, side with God, not with yourself. Amen? Trust who he says he is. Second, and this one is tougher, I'm just gonna warn you. Uh, trust who he says you are. In Christ, we have a new status of undeserved privilege. Legally, God declares you to possess the righteousness of Jesus. If you want to impress your seminary friends, it's called imputed righteousness. He doesn't just take, he doesn't just take your sin off of you and put it on Jesus. He takes the righteousness of Jesus and he puts it on you relationally. So legally, you're declared righteous. Relationally, Jesus is walking with you so you can live that out. And so here's what this means. I'm embarrassed I'm gonna do this, but it just makes so much sense. My wife is about to be really proud of me because I make fun of her this kind of stuff all the time. I don't really like the, the letter shows, you know, like the, whatever, NYPD Blue 87 or whatever, all these shows and the crime shows and the drama shows. And so I'll spare you the details, but I found myself watching NCIS the other day, okay? Which if you know me, that's strange. But I'm watching season two, this episode call is very dramatic, The Call of Silence, right? It's like, how does that work? It's a call of silence, but it's dra drama, right? TV drama. And so this is a movie about marine lawyers doing marine justice. <laughs> and there's this 80-year-old man. He's kind of like an old, frail, curmudgeonly kind of a man who's being investigated for murder. So he's in his lawyer's office, this huge office and all these cubicles around, and he's talking to his lawyer. And then real dramatically, you hear the bing, and the elevator opens, and there's this lady lawyer who's all business and these two huge Marines behind her. And man, they go stomping through this office. And they get, and they start chewing out this guy like, your time is up, we've waited long enough, we're bringing you. And they're hollering back and forth and the Marines are just like, do something old. Like they're just ready to take him down or something. And without saying anything, the old man's lawyer, he reaches over and slides the old man's tie out and the room goes silent because Behind his tie was a medal of honor that he had won back in Iwo Jima. 
And when the Marines see this, their entire countenance changes and they, boom, pop up into a salute, just like that, as soon as they catch eyes on it. In a moment, they saw this guy differently. They saw that his status had changed and they conferred to him all of the honor and respect that a Medal of Honor recipient rightfully deserves. So here's the idea. In Christ, God has placed a Medal of Honor around your neck. Not for your achievements, but for his. You carry the dignity, the honor, the respect, the status of Jesus. That's the way God looks at you. Trust what he says about you. And if, you, if you're willing to do that, then finally trust him to lead you. There's this incredible confidence in the man from NCIS, almost this carelessness. As everyone's shouting at him, he's just looking at them like they're fools because he knows he's a Medal of Honor winner. He's looking at some privates, some young guys, and he's just like, won the Medal of Honor before you were alive, boy. He's not scared. He's not nervous. There's an ease and a calm about him because he knows who he is. The glorious reality of our justification is when we trust Christ, we're free. We experience freedom from all the pressures of opinion and circumstance because the only voice in the universe that matters looks at you and smiles. He looks at you and says, I'm pleased with you. Because we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, we can freely follow God's plans for our lives. From this reality, we can get to work without all this pressure. And so here's a better formula for justification. Real faith is when relationship with God meets good works. So here's what I mean. If you trust God, if you believe what he says about you, you'll get to work. Um, You will be transformed. Uh, C.S. Lewis, one time he used stronger language than this, but he described salvation this way. He's like, maybe somebody gets saved and they're the biggest jerk in the world. He didn't say jerk, but the biggest jerk in the world. And then 50 years later, they die and they're just mean and angry, right? Like maybe the needle won't move that much. You know, life is hard and there's all kinds, but you can't have the spirit of God living inside of you and not change. You can't have the spirit of God living inside of you and not work to push back the darkness and hopelessness of life marked by sin. But the difference is so staggering. You have been given relationship with God and the fruit of that is you join the family business. He adopts you and then he says, you wanna go play? We're gonna go fix everything. Think about that. Jesus looks out and says, behold, I'm making all things what? New. You want to come play? You want to come do this with me? You want to see what we could do together in the, in the sex industry like Scarlet Hope is doing out of our church in Louisville? You want to see what God could do with the homeless? You want to see what God could do in the local school system? You want to see what God could do in drug addicts and broken marriages and in politics and in all? You want to see what God could go do? Then come along. But please don't do that to try to make me love you. Please don't do that to try to earn something from me. Christ declares us righteous. And now he says, let me show you how to live that way. And this is in no way about securing God's pleasure or a place in his kingdom. It's about reclaiming your humanity. It's about trusting God and being transformed. So the question for you guys to answer this week, whether it's in community groups or at family meal or whatever, is what does it mean for you to trust God now? All God wants to hear you say is I trust you. Help me trust you more. What will that mean for you now? 
What will it mean for you to trust God with your children, to trust him with your finances or your future? Where's God calling you to obey? And what if that isn't to earn something or to please him or whatever? What if it's about you becoming more human? What if it's about you seeing the work of your father in this world? Listen to the voice of God, people of God. Trust him and follow him. And so now we we come to communion to ground ourselves in his great promise and our great justification so that we can go and be his people. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. If you're here and you're guilty, if you're here and you feel the weight of your legal troubles, the body of Christ was broken for you. By his wounds, we are healed. All of the punishments your sin deserved were laid on Christ. Legally, you have been justified. After the meal, he took a cup of wine and he says, drink this and remember my blood shed for you. This is what seals your relationship with God. For those of you who feel relationally distant from God or like you've gone too far or done too much, the blood of Christ has been shed for you. This is what makes you safe with God. You are justified by grace alone. And now the question is, will you believe it? Will you, will you trust God? That's the question we have to answer this morning. In a few moments, uh, I'll pray for us and you can come forward or or go back. There'll be stations and you can rip off a piece of bread, dip it in wine or juice. Wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it and there'll be gluten-free elements to my left, your right. I'll pray for us and then Christians, let's come remember our justification in just a few moments. Let's pray.